0: Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
1: All right, we're back for another episode. Episode 68. Bit of whirlwind week of emotions and movies. We watched six macaroons this week, which is a lot. So we'll get into the first one. We went to the theater. Tell us about it.
0: Um, so there is a new guest curation at our favorite place, Metro Cinema, that is right up our alley. It is called The Trials of Love. And what's really cool about this guest curation is it's not just about romantic love, but it's about love between all sorts of configurations of people. And the first one that we saw is about the complicated love that exists between a mother and a daughter. And so we and saw... Uh, Ingmar Bergman's 1978 film Autumn Sonata. It is a drama, and as I already said, directed and written by Ingmar Bergman. It stars Ingrid Bergman of No Relation as Charlotte Andergast, Liv Ullman as Eva, Lena Nyman as Helena, and Halvar Bjork as Victor. The synopsis for this film is after a seven-year absence, Charlotte Andergast travels to Sweden to reunite with her daughter Eva. The pair have a troubled relationship. Over an emotional night, the pair reopen the wounds of the past. So if you've been following our journey of watching movies since we started, then you know that really early on, episode four, we watched our first ever Bergman and had our minds totally blown. Now, this is only our third Bergman, and we do plan to watch many, many more. But this was our first one that we saw in the theater, and that was really exciting. What did you think of Autumn Sonata?
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, too, because we set the bar real high in our Bergman viewing with Persona, which was mind-meltingly awesome. And then we were slightly disappointed with Seven Seal. Because I think we wanted it to be something that it didn't end up being, unfortunately. And maybe we'll maybe we'll re- appreciate it a little bit more on a subsequent view. But uh, Bergman's back, baby. This movie, holy shit. It is... It was incredible. I didn't really know what to expect going into it. But... Uh, it's really, really powerful. If you are a person that's ever had a parent, this uh, this gets into the realness of the, those relationships. And what would happen if you actually said truthfully what you felt to each other? And there's some, there's some painful shit in this.
0: Yeah, what's interesting about this movie, you mentioned we've seen Persona, we've seen The Seventh Seal, and now we've seen this they're all quite different. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, he definitely has a style and ideas that he's interested in exploring, but persona is so abstract. And then the seventh seal is really playing on some of those like more um, historical kind of feelings in that film, like Mm -hmm. with a lot of the more literal plot elements. Um, And then this film feels almost like a play. Yeah. Yeah. Like it has uh, a theater feeling to it. It's very dialogue heavy. The set is quite realistic. There isn't any abstraction in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the speaker, the guest curator, I I believe his name is Daryl Smith. um, He spoke about how Igmar Bergman in between making films, uh, I think he said in the winter, he would often write plays. And so you can see that he has a knack for that and really strong dialogue in how this film is made so it is interesting to me that we started with this film persona that is so abstract and has some of that like lynchian stuff that we like um and then we come to understand that lynch is inspired by bergman of course Mm -hmm. and this doesn't have that and yet it was an immediate top five for me like not top five i don't know why i said that an immediate five (laughs) out of five for me (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. not an immediate top five i gotcha um but like an immediate perfect film to me
1: yeah uh and while those other two films that we've seen of his are very stylistic especially persona very very artsy fartsy in a great way this this although it feels like you said it feels like a play and it just kind of takes place in these seemingly normal sets there are those stylistic flourishes throughout there's the framing devices he loves a like not it's like a depth of field thing that isn't a depth of field thing. They'll have one person that's kind of being covered by another person in the foreground and they're speaking to each other. One person's looking to the side. One person's looking directly towards the camera, the camera and I'm such a sucker for it. It's it it works so well and is so effective When you're seeing this dialogue happen between two characters, but they're both in focus at the same time, and it's not like an over-the-shoulder shot just focusing on one at a time all the time, I think it's really effective.
0: And it works particularly well um, because this film is so highly realistic when there are these moments that are a little bit more stylistic to really drive home the like thematic exploration of mother and daughter and like the symbolism inherent in that through the, the body language and some of those more stylistic shots Mm -hmm. and the way that they're framed in relation and in contrast to each other. So I know you said this is a relatable film to anyone who's had a parent, but not to cut you out of the connection, but I think it is particularly (laughs) relevant to people who have complicated mother daughter relationships like this just felt so true to my life experience and not in like a one for one way. Like so much of what this movie is about is how Charlotte is this and has been this successful like concert pianist and was like out working and leaving her daughter behind. Um, And that's certainly not the case in my relationship with my mother, but I do have a very stilted relationship with my mother where there is a lot of love there, but there's a lot of unspoken stuff and a lot of difficulty in attempting to speak about those things Um, and I would say you've witnessed that you've witnessed it in your own kind of seeing mother-daughter relationships in Mm -hmm. your life with friends family um, with me and I just don't know how Igmar Bergman captured that when he is not a daughter or a mother Mm -hmm. it's quite something
1: yeah and I think that that's just a that that's just an angle of the film that I'll never be able to take away from it. Having never been a daughter with a mother, um, I can see it hitting so much harder and being able, and like with what you're saying, just being able to take away so much more from it on a personal level, having that, that specific kind of relationship, uh, with a parent.
0: And it's quite a cold film. Yeah. Like it's very biting. It's very bleak in the way that it's like honesty kind of rips these characters open when they have their, as per the synopsis, emotional night of reopening the wounds of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, this was Isabella, not Isabella Rossellini, this was Ingrid Bergman's final film, not Igmar, Ingrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's Isabella Rossellini's mother. Mm-hmm. So I guess that she has spoken about. Um, how she connected to the film immediately on reading the script because she had been like a topic of conversation in the news and the gossip in the Hollywood world. I guess not Hollywood. She's doing like Italian film um, in the 1940s because she left her family to run off with Robert Roberto Rossellini and that's uh, Isabella Rossellini's father, I believe. Um, so she felt like a connection to some of the difficulty of both sides there, Mm -hmm. right? Like I would say one thing that I really appreciate about this film is I don't think it villainizes Charlotte. I think, um, it shows the complications of motherhood and daughterhood Mm -hmm. and how both of them have these pains and wounds and regrets and worries and angers at each other. There's one particular scene that like just, oof, (laughs) <laughs> the yeah. dialogue in it is just something. Um, this is when I see myself revisiting fairly often.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like it is a masterclass, honestly, in acting performance dialogue. And yeah, the fact that there are so many moments and there's so many scenes throughout the film where it is just dialogue, but after the conclusion of the scene, And what's been said, it's exactly what you said. You just are just like, oh, oh man. I mean, this is a, this this film is another great case for us uh, as two people that don't want to have children. Yeah. Especially not after watching this, just uh, helps the case. But it's just, it's also this peek in at how us as humans and in parent child relationships you kind of inevitably inevitably unload all of your shit onto each other and it comes out that no one is 100% happy and everyone always wants more and you'll you'll probably always be chasing that like that's the feeling I kind of got
0: yeah so a writer for av club Keith Phipps said this about uh, the film and I just think it's the perfect little log line about the film. So he said it is an austerely beautiful meditation on death and the not always realized possibility of reconciliation across generations Mm -hmm. that, that phrase, the not always realized possibility of reconciliation. I think the film really digs into that complicated tug of war of, I want to tell you all the ways you've hurt me. I want to tell you all the ways that this relationship has been strained and troubling and damaged me and yet I want to be in your life and I love you and I want this relationship to grow stronger. And I don't know if there's anything more complicated than parent child when it comes to that kind of desire and hurt. Yeah. That kind of exists simultaneously. I think, think the film just looks at that in such a complicated and yet open and raw way that doesn't try to like put a neat bow on anything. Um, and I really love that, it was framed by this curation of the trials of love and that this was the first film in this run of films and that it's about a parent and a child rather than a
2: couple. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it, I think it was an excellent choice to kick off the series and trials of love indeed. Yeah. When I start thinking about it and if I were to be a parent And if I were to ever be confronted in the way that it's it's so it is so complicated that parent child relationship of the parent is ultimately responsible for raising the child and doing right by the child. But at the same time, the parent is fully a person that is entitled to do what's right for them and to prioritize themselves. Um, And eventually that balance is going to get fucked. In some way or another.
0: I mean, in my own understanding of the world, it's this complicated thing of I often find myself saying, like, well, you chose to have children, like, in my brain. And yet I also firmly believe that parents are human beings first and that their whole identity is not being a parent, particularly mothers, because there's a cultural history across many places of particular burdening and expectations of mothers over fathers, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's something inherently more rife in this film because of what we typically expect from mothers. And so I, even I am holding that messy contradiction of, well, Charlotte chose to have Eva, but also like Charlotte deserves to be her own person.
1: Yeah. But also there's just at least like what I was feeling. I feel like there's a lot of thought and consideration and commitment to make going into having a child that I think that a lot of that isn't learned until after you have a child. And and I think that that also creates this complicated thing that can lead to things like resentment or anger or jealousy, all of a, a bunch of nasty, gross emotions that can make a parent child relationship strained or complicated in the future. I don't want to do it, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. You're
0: talking as if you're an expert on it. <laughs> I, I don't know.
1: This is just like feelings that I've had about it and there's just it's so it it's so it's so scary and I'm I'm just like
0: the film also doesn't it doesn't just look at the relationship between Eva and Charlotte because um Eva has a sister Helena who is has some kind of degenerative disability. Um, And she needs like full-time care. And there's a very complicated um, but less explored relationship between Charlotte and Helena. And then also between what Eva thinks about the relationship between Charlotte and Helena. But then on top of that, Eva has lost her only child when he was really young. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes another component of it. The kind of um, relationship between mother and son when the mother has lost her son mm-hmm. and then how that impacts her relationship with her husband. So there's a lot of complicated things going on in here. And I think they'll only get richer on subsequent viewings, but this film absolutely floored me. It's not an easy film emotionally. Um, and it certainly isn't his most stylistic, stylistic abstract film, but I think there's something incredibly powerful and important that he's exploring um, in a really honest way.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, how, how, you want to keep talking?
1: Uh, I was just going to say. I uh, recommend it uh, every Mother's Day.
0: Oof. <laughs> this <laughs> and hereditary double feature. <laughs> yes. How did Autumn Sonata make you feel?
1: Uh, I made me feel blown away by the magnificent showcase of complicated parent-child relationships. How did I make you feel?
0: It made me feel the messiness, love, and pain that exists in mother-daughter relationships.
1: Yeah. Okay, we were feeling like watching something real easy. Keeping it easy and sleazy. So we went with the 2010 horror mystery thriller Insidious. It was uh, directed by James Wan and written by Lee Winnell. So our Sawboys returning for another one. Uh, it stars Patrick Patrick Wilson as Josh Lambert. Rose Byrne as Renee Lambert. Ty Simpkins as Dalton Lambert. Lynn Shea as Elise Rainier, uh, and Lee Winnell as Um, synopsis. A family looks to prevent evil spirits from trapping their comatose child in a realm called the Further. Oh, man. (laughs) So silly. Uh, yeah. Another James Wan ex-Lee Winnell joint. What'd you think?
0: So we've seen Insidious before. Yes, I think just once, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Um... I was hoping I would like it more a second time, but I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The first time we watched this, I remember feeling similarly to this time, which is that the first half hour or so is quite scary. Mm -hmm. But then it eventually gets to a place that just isn't scary for me. And because the first part of the film has good tension, good terror, good, like, freaky imagery, the movement into some more intentional, I think, silliness just doesn't quite jive with me.
1: Yeah, and I think I have a better understanding of the intention behind the silliness after seeing Malignant. Yeah, I agree. Because um, that that leans fully into the silliness, and it works really well.
0: But then I think James Bond has also done a lean fully into the terror And fear of the first part of the film with The Conjuring. So he's very capable of doing both. I think Saw mixes the two a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, Insidious is like very freaky for half of it and then very silly for half of it. And Saw kind of maintains that juxtaposition throughout the film where it's both silly and scary kind of simultaneously throughout the entirety of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So this is where it gets tricky for me because I do like the first half of the film. And it's not like I hate the second half of the film, but I just think even the scary parts of the first half of the film, I've seen them done better in other movies. So why would I choose Insidious? Yeah. Like I would pick The Conjuring or I would pick Paranormal Activity or I don't know other movies I haven't thought of currently. And if I want the silliness, I would go and watch Malignant or go and watch Barbarian. Like, Barbarian's a film I think that, for me at least, does that really, really freaky and then really, really silly switch better.
1: Yeah, it feels even though there is that switch that happens, it feels tonally consistent across the whole movie for me. Um, whereas I f- yeah, I feel kind of bait and switched with this. I felt the same thing with uh, James Wan's other movie Dead Silence uh, I think the thing that's kind of frustrating overall is that James Wan knows what can really freak me out like he has a lock on the stuff that really freaks me out like in Dead Silence the whole creepy old lady thing very scary There's <laughs> Dead, some-
0: I don't think Dead Silence will hold up
1: no, not at all. Like, I know that it's a trash movie, <laughs> but there are a few moments in there that are really scary. There's a few moments in Insidious that are really scary. The Conjuring is just a really well-crafted package that tonally is consistent across the whole thing, in my opinion. Um, I think I'm with you. I, I wanted to have a different experience watching it this time, and I, I didn't get that, unfortunately.
0: The other thing that's unique to, I'm sure not just me, but that I'm speaking to specifically in my experience is that I am both really fascinated and really freaked out about dream stuff. Hmm. Like one of my favorite films is Waking Life. um, Richard Linklater's kind of exploration of lucid dreaming and what dreams are. So the idea of Dalton being stuck in a dream world and this concept of astral projecting actually should be pretty freaky and interesting to me. And I just actually feel like it doesn't really matter. Mm
1: -hmm. Like it
0: could have had nothing to do with dreams and the film would be the same. Yeah. Like it could have been poltergeist style. You have to go into a TV to get him out and it wouldn't have been a different movie. Mm -hmm. And there is something Uncanny about how they choose to depict this dream world, but it also feels pretty low punch Yeah, it's just like okay, we're just gonna fog use, machines. Fog
1: re- machines. Re- the same house. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. The, they just, over the
0: top makeup, over the top makeup. Same,
1: same house. Just yeah, just <laughs> a lot of fog. Put
0: some, put some fog and some green lights. Yeah. So that just you know because there's a potential of that to have been something really interesting to me that just increases the disappointment because I do think having that dream element to it is unique, but then they don't really do anything unique with it. And it kind of is just a, at the end of the day to me, just a by the numbers ghosty demony movie.
1: Yeah. It's just kind of the, like what could be a really interesting world to explore just turns into a conduit for, Showing some creepy, some semi-creepy stuff on screen.
0: I totally get why some people really like this movie. Because I think it does the silliness well and it does the scary parts well. They just don't glue together in a way that works for me. Um, And then the other part that makes it really complicated, and such a bummer, we have to talk about this twice in one week, but we went and saw the second Insidious together in the theater and the second Insidious definitely has some problematic transphobic underpinnings to it that inform a subsequent viewing of the first film Mm -hmm. because the character that that is an issue with in the second film is in the first film. You just don't know that part of the story yet. And so it's just not something I feel I need to give my time or energy to. Mm -hmm. Um, Revisiting it again was enough. Do love that the demon is called lipstick face demon because that just, (laughs) <laughs> really drives home how silly they're being. And did you know that the kid who plays Dalton is the missionary from the whale?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I saw that the, like when the, around the time the whale was coming out, I was like, Oh
2: shit. Oh, you knew
0: it then. I didn't know it until we, we, I was <laughs> looking up the movie and I was like, Ty Simpkins. I know that name.
1: It's a great name. Um, yeah, there's just like, there's certainly some like vibey moody stuff going on in here. It definitely reaches a re- a reveal, and when that happens, it totally loses me. And like going into the movie, I just want it to scare me. I want it to be a creep fest. I want the chilies the whole time, and then it just stops doing that and tone shifts. And I feel I feel frustrated because I just want to stay in. I want to stay in the creep world, <laughs> but but it loses me there, and and that kind of.
0: And that's why we've got the Conjuring.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, this is, this is okay. It's, uh, mid, as the kids say. I want it so badly for it to scare my pants off on the second viewing, but it doesn't. The music is good though. Some great horror music.
0: Clashes and clangs, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> a lot of clashes and clangs. Uh, how did it make you feel?
0: Increasingly disappointed as it went on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're mad. Yeah, it's not a. that's not an experience you want while you're no, watching a movie. Really,
0: especially not a horror movie.
1: Yeah. Had me feeling just uh, very meh.
0: All right, to Other Directions. I got a little mystery movie pick, and I wanted to do something a little bit more fun. Autumn Sonata was quite heavy, while amazing, and Insidious was, yeah, <laughs> well done. So I picked the 2022 comedy-adventure film Catherine Called Birdie. This was directed and written by Lena Dunham and based on a young adult novel by Karen Cushman. It stars some pretty cool people.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, Bella Ramsey as Birdie. Big fan of Bella Ramsey. Billy Piper is Lady Aslan. Andrew Scott, Hot Priest himself, as Lord Rolo. Like the, like the chocolate.
2: <laughs> but not spelt the same. <laughs> not the same. Uh,
0: Leslie Sharp as Marwenna and Joe Alwyn as Uncle George. Synopsis for this film is a teenage girl in medieval England navigates life and tries to avoid the arranged marriages her father maps out for her. What did you think of Catherine Calberti?
1: Uh First thing I want to talk about is that at one point we were quite big Lena Dunham fans.
0: Yeah, that's changed.
1: <laughs> yeah, we watched the first season of Girls very excitedly and stuck it out for the whole series. And I think that you read one or two of her books. And that was kind of... I I I don't know
0: that she has more than one book, but I have read her memoir, yeah.
1: But uh, I feel like you reading that was the beginning of the turning point for our Um, fandom of Lena Dunham.
0: Well, actually, I wrote a paper in university before Girls was done, and I'm not sure if the memoir came out before or after Girls Mm -hmm. was done, but I wrote a um, research paper exploring representations of womenhood in Sex and the City and Girls, and arguing that right, between know. Sex in the City and When Girls came out, because there was a lot of comparisons between the two, it's just a continued exploration of white womanhood in this city that has so much more diversity than that. Um, mm. And I think the title was like, Who Are the Girls or something like that? There's a line in Girls that I I pulled out to be the title of the paper. And I was I was, yeah, critiquing the representations of that. And then, of course, because I'm doing that and it's a university research paper, I'm reading what other people are saying about both sex in the city and girls. And I think I, at the time became very aware of the quite limited perspective that both of those shows have. And then also a lot of the inherent, um, marginalization and sometimes like blatant racism that is indicative of both shows. And then sex in the city in particular, I think quite blatant like homophobia transphobia. Mm. So, no, I think we became critical of it a lot a lot sooner, but there was just a lot of controversy with Lena Dunham when the memoir came out because of a couple of things that um she said about her sibling. Mm-hmm. Um and I do not want to get into any yeah. of that. No. That no, is no, no. it's all over the internet if people want to look at it. But I do think we haven't been jumping to look at what Lena Dunham's been doing in a long time or really anyone who was involved in girls. I do remember liking tiny furniture, her, her feature film, I believe Mm -hmm. quite a lot. But I, we watched that around the same time that we watched the first season of girls. And I, I don't have an accurate current mindset on it because that was like a decade ago.
1: Mm -hmm. But I also feel like Lena Dunham kind of dropped off the radar. Like I, if she's been doing things, it's stuff I haven't been aware of in recent years. So seeing that she made this, but wasn't in it, basi- wasn't in it, wasn't basing it wasn't based off of her own material.
0: Yeah, a lot of her work has been very um, like semi autobiographical mm-hmm. and then she's the star in it. So this was a very, a very, very different approach. Like someone who watches this but has never seen girls or heard of girls would have a completely different perception of Lena Dunham. Than what is like kind of culturally out there,
1: yeah. And this this felt like there was a lot of fun on screen here, even though like there are, it does tackle some very, it it does tackle social themes in some very good ways, in accessible ways. But this played the way I think like a Greta Gerwig film would play a little bit, which is just fun and a delight to watch because Bella Ramsey is really great in this. And I, it made me really happy to see them doing comedy.
0: Yeah, I mean, so what was what got me onto this film is the other day you were busy or you were working or, or something, and I watched the Actors on Actors with Paul Meskel, shocker, <laughs> and Joe Alwyn, who's in this. Um, and they're both, so Joe Alwyn was obviously in this film with Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal has like an upcoming film with Andrew Scott. So they got talking about those things and then in doing that um, they got talking about Alwyn's experience working with Lena Dunham and then Paul Mescal's experience working with Charlotte Wells. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh right, I had heard of this movie and like Bella Ramsey's in it and, and it looks kind of cute and funny and a few people that I follow on Letterboxd have watched it and liked it. Not like 10 out of 10s, but, but they enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, this seems like it could be fun to watch. And it was so cool to see Bella Ramsey be able to lean into the comedy because they're quite funny
2: mm-hmm.
0: in the last of us. But that comedy is like relief from the heaviness of the show. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there there's some humor in the role in game of thrones that I think just comes from this, like, fierce little person being the leader. But to just be, like, full-on silly was pretty cool to see.
1: Yeah. And I'm also a bit of a sucker for modern humorous takes in Arthurian-era stories.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, where else have you seen
1: that? Knight's Tale.
0: Oh, I saw somebody on Letterboxd call this, like, Knight's Tale for Women, and I, like, as we talked about last week with like now and then is girls stand by me. I really hate that. And I think it's so reductive, but also I don't like a night's tale and I don't remember it. So I'm like,
1: mm. I also used, I don't know how well it holds up, but I used to really like uh, Holy grail as well.
0: Yeah, I don't <laughs> <laughs> Not interested.
1: <laughs> Holy grail has been the one mystery movie pick that Kylie adamantly said no to.
0: I think it's got problems.
1: Oh, probably. I know that multiple members of Monty Python crew are,
0: uh, uncool,
1: have said some stuff (laughs) that's not cool.
0: And I, yeah, so I usually don't really like period pieces of any kind, whether it's medieval or Victorian, like it's just not something I'm all that interested in, but I think it can change for me when there's that like more modern humor brought into it. Mm -hmm. um, and I had such affection for the character of Birdie.
2: Yeah.
0: I think one of my other favorite lighthearted, oh, I mean, actually in, in any configuration is just girls behaving rebelliously. Mm-hmm. Like girls being like, fuck gender, fuck your rules. I'm going to rebel against this. Um, and I think this film, while it is lighthearted, there's some bleak stuff in it and some heavy, heavy, heavy stuff in it that, you know, having watched Mustang a couple weeks back, which is more contemporary, but, but set in Turkey. Um, it's like, you know, this marriage stuff that's being explored in Catherine called birdie, it lingers and proliferates in, in different places in different ways. But I, just like when you watched Autumn Sonata, you were like, I've never felt more affirmed in my desire not to have kids watching this. I'm like, I've never felt more affirmed in my desire not to get married, even though I know that, If we were to get married, which we won't, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that my students asked if they could pay for and plan our wedding. And I said, we're not getting married. And they're like, your party then. (laughs) What if we rent out your favorite movie theater and make you a cake? Um, No, because down with marriage.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, I feel like, yeah, this does a great job of showing why marriage is and has always been BS. (laughs) Um, (laughs) excuse
0: me but marriage is bullshit
1: but like this is where it came from right it's a father's attempt to try to
0: To secure money and prestige sell
1: off his daughter to somebody (laughs) Um, and that is so yucky and it is so Rooted in the cognitive dissonance that we have now, of like we're not going to think about that. I just want to have pretty things on a special day. I'm getting into rude territory, <laughs> but I'll, so I'll stop. But it, it does a good. It, it is a good example of where it came from and where it originated and how yucky it is.
0: And I think some people harness that to their benefit now. Of particularly, I do not begrudge anyone who lives in a place where there are legal benefits to being married, right? Yeah. Like if, if in the States getting legally married means that you can be on your partner's benefits, exactly. Like that's, I, I totally understand that, that, you know, in the past and then looking at Catherine called birdie and I know, I know, I know this is not some historical text. <laughs> I, <get laughs> I, know, I
2: know, I know, I <laughs> know.
0: Don't, don't come at me. No one ever comes at us, but <laughs> don't come at me with some like, well, this isn't really Arthurian or whatever um but it, the way that the film depicts it is that marriage has been and can still be about everyone but the people getting married and sometimes everyone but the woman getting married mm. benefiting from the marriage now i think now a lot of people particularly i think probably in the states were Healthcare is a big issue mm-hmm. um, and probably safety within queer relationships too, to have that legal binding. Especially now. Um, absolutely. Where that can be a harnessing of the benefits of legal marriage that two people are actively engaging in. I mean, that Hannah Gadsby talks about that in her most recent special. What is it called? Mm-hmm. Can't remember, but it's her most recent Netflix special that like, it's the legal benefits of marriage that were the reason, not marriage itself. Um, something special. Something special. There That's you go. the
1: name of Hannah Gatsby. Special. It was. Pre- it was pretty good. Check. It's it pretty
0: out. good. It's. It's definitely more lighthearted, and um, Hannah Gatsby deserves that. But yeah, this. I just. I think I consistently was turning to you during this and being like, "Fuck marriage. <laughs> I'm so mad.
1: Don't marry me. Fuck you.
0: <laughs> Don't you dare propose. <laughs> Speaking of the frustrating part of it, Andrew Scott, uh, Mr. Hot Priest, damn him for being so charmingly unlikable in this.
1: He's such a doink.
0: But he's so charming.
1: I love him so much. I
0: know. (laughs) I just like ended this and was like, I want to rewatch Fleabag.
1: Yeah, we should do that. Because we also recently, so the new season of Black Mirror is coming out and we're like, we didn't finish what we thought we hadn't watched the last two episodes of the last season. Turns out we did. And the second last one was the episode that stars him. So we've had a lot of Andrew, Andrew Scott in our life more than usual lately. And I'm just like, God damn, he's really good. And he's going to be in a movie with Paul Mescal, and, and they, I, and they might kiss. I
0: really hope they do. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, is it high? Is that how you say his name? Yeah. Um, Who we really like. He made one of our absolute favorite TV shows looking. And then a movie we really like called weekend his stuff has traditionally been like queer content, but it's possible. He's doesn't want to be only making queer focused content. This doesn't mean his films won't be queer, but maybe that's not the like centerpiece of it. Mm -hmm. But oh my goodness, my world would explode if Andrew Scott and Paul Muskell kissed. Yeah. I would be so happy. So I'm manifesting it.
1: (laughs) Kiss. Kiss. (laughs) It's not in this movie.
0: Please put it somewhere. (laughs) But I think um, one of the things that was so lovely about this film is just seeing Bella Ramsey outside of The Last of Us because mm-hmm. they're so damn cool in real life, too. And I am so charmed by the like parent child dynamic that Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal kind of have offset. I think it's a little bit more kind of reminds me of how Frankie Corio and Paul Mescal. Mm-hmm. Act outside of um, After Sun, mm-hmm. where there's this clear mentorship coming from Pedro Pascal to Bella Ramsey, but also like some silliness and some fun, like fun uncle energy.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so I really hope that Bella Ramsey gets to do some stuff that's not just serial TV because yeah. they're cool. Yeah, it's so funny.
1: Yeah, like this firmly established that they have range and can do multiple genres, and are very good at it. So more work for Bella Ramsey, please. But yeah, I I had a lot of fun with this. Like this is this gave me very much throw it on on a lazy Sunday afternoon for a feel good time.
0: Yeah, this is a really good either. I just need to watch something easy because life's been hard lately or I want a good matinee movie. Will this absolutely change your life? I don't think so. But I really do recommend watching it.
1: Yeah. It also has one of my favorite tropes in films of just putting superimposed text that has comedy infused into it on the screen.
0: <laughs> you, you quite like that?
1: I love it when like Spider-Verse does it really well, especially the new one. It's I, I, I love it. It's so good. You have to read real fast to get to get it. Sometimes.
0: <laughs> but it is worth it. It's worth it. All right. How did Catherine
1: called Birdie make you feel? Charmed by the humor and delighted by Bella's performance to make you feel
0: maybe kind of feel just like a goofy in between the more serious moments and ultimately just a light happiness
1: mm, yeah i agree Well,
0: oh, we got to go somewhere so cool right now <laughs> we're taking Whoa. you somewhere so cool you don't even know it
1: um we revisited one of our all-time faves the 1999 Oh, uh, action adventure. I didn't write down the genre. Probably
0: action adventure. Science Sci-fi. Fiction. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh We watched the matrix. Uh, It was written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski. It stars Mr. Baberoni himself. Keanu Reeves as Neo Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus, Miss Baberoni, Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith. And that's all I'm going to say. Um, the synopsis, when a beautiful stranger uh, leads beautiful computer hacker Neo to a forbidding underworld, uh, he discovers the shocking truth. The life he knows is an elaborate deception of an evil cyber intelligence.
0: Did you add beautiful in there? Yeah. Okay. I was like, whoa, what well,
1: I didn't. I added the second beautiful. It said beautiful stranger in the synopsis. I oh. added beautiful computer hacker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he is a beautiful computer hacker. <laughs> There's a lot of beautiful people in this.
1: Truly. Um, yeah, I I was really excited to revisit this. We watch this once a year to every two years. It, it's it, it's on a constant rotation. Oh, what do you think of The Matrix?
0: So I have to start with a story, mm. which is that my second oldest sister and I, despite, um, I think, growing up, feeling like we had the least in common of the four of us siblings. I think her and I have the most similar level of like obsession with things
2: mm-hmm. where like if
0: we like something, we stick with it. Right. Whereas my other two siblings will kind of have these, at least as as kids, these kind of like intense obsessions that don't last very long. Whereas Britt and I would have long-term committed obsessions. And long term goals like she wanted to be a lawyer from the time she was in elementary school and she's a lawyer. I didn't want to get married from the time I was in elementary school or have kids. I'm not doing that. (laughs) You know, like we just I've always liked to write. That's never gone away.
1: Stuck to your guns.
0: Yeah. So we you know, in that way, we had a lot in common. So Britt and I, more than my other siblings, we each had a favorite movie and we each had a favorite celebrity crush and we stuck with that. And so Brit's was The Matrix and Kiana Reeves. And she was obsessed. So it came out in 1999. I'm nine. She's 12. Kind of a little fitting that it would resonate with her a little bit more. I think nine is like a little young for the heady stuff in the matrix. Whereas 12, you might be like, where is my place in the universe? You know?
1: Damn. (laughs) It's big. Thank you for a 12 year old (laughs) for this 12 year old pointing at myself.
0: Oh, I, uh, I feel like that was around the age. I started getting a little bit more interested in some of that existential philosophical stuff in a pretty like simplified way. Hmm. But I certainly wasn't thinking about that at nine. So Brit's obsessed with the matrix. She gets the full cardboard cutout of it from blockbuster when they're done with it. It's huge. We had a big basement and it took up a whole wall. Like it was like the big, like the big ones that they have like in, in the cineplexes. Right. Where it's like, it was like Neo Morpheus and Trinity and then like a background behind them. And we had that like up in her basement (laughs) and then she was just obsessed with Keanu Reeves. So a lot of the reason I've seen so many Keanu Reeves movies is because she was watching them. But here's the really sad thing that happens when an older sibling is obsessed with something. You can't be.
1: Yeah. It can't be yours. It cannot
0: be yours. Like she was obsessed with the animatrix just all the time. She and her friends would like dress up and like do the bullet scene in the basement and like Mm. it was a whole thing. So I always liked The Matrix and it was on a lot. Mm-hmm. But it always felt like, well, that's Brit's thing. And okay. Keanu Reeves, that's that's Brit's guy. Mm-hmm. But I am a goddamn adult now. <laughs> She's married. She has kids. Yeah. Keanu Reeves, give me mine if I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the last time we watched this about a year ago, I think I had always kind of been like, it's a nine out of ten. Because it's Britt's favorite movie. But now I'm like, no. No, it's
1: perfect. It's mine. <laughs> it's
0: perfect. Like she really hit the jackpot in like her celebrity crush. He seems, Keanu Reeves seems like an absolute gem of a human being. Mm-hmm. So you know what? I have a big crush on him and I love this movie and that's that. I'm reclaiming my childhood.
1: I, I love that so much. Um, Yeah, I just, just sticking with the Keanu Reeves being awesome. It just reminded me of... I've revisited this interview a few few times and I feel like I always get choked up (laughs) whenever I watch it. It is a fun interview, though. It's an interview with um, Keanu Reeves on the Stephen Colbert show. And he's doing like what he calls the Colbert questionnaire or something. And he's just asking Keanu Reeves some questions like what's your what's the song you're going to listen to, like your Desert Island song and like what's all this stuff. But the question that always kind of just gets me kind of choked up a little bit is that he asks him what he thinks will happen when, when we die. I'm going to get choked up right now. But like his answer is, I think that the one, the people that love us will miss us or something along I those lines. I believe he says,
0: I, I don't know, but I know that the people who love us will miss us. Oh,
1: and he delivers it so well. Yeah. So good. But that's such a nice thing that is so not wrapped up in religion or beliefs but just so like
0: controversy.
1: It's just so human.
0: And he's somebody who's experienced some significant loss. So particularly beautiful that like, that's his mindset about it. I don't know. I, he's a real winner and my sister had it right back in the day. And I'm just piggybacking on that now. He's the one. He is the one. (laughs) Now to, before we get into the movie proper, I've talked about this on the show before. My number one crush regrettably was Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. And because, like my sister, when I was obsessed, I was really obsessed. I have a lot of Johnny Depp stuff. Jack Sparrow action figures, and my grandma had a painting of Johnny Depp commissioned for me, and so on and so forth. In my reading on The Matrix, I found out that the Wachowskis wanted Johnny Depp as Neo. And that the studio wanted Val Kilmer or Brad Pitt. And so the studio said no to Johnny Depp and they pursued Brad Pitt and Val Kilmer. But those two people said no, like they turned it down. So then the studio was like, okay, well, we'll consider Johnny Depp. But at that point, the Wachowskis had started looking at Keanu Reeves and he was really tuned into the concept, like the, the theory and the bigger ideas that they were exploring aside from it just being a film. And they wanted to work with him. And so they at that point decided they were no longer interested in Johnny Depp. But had the studio been on board with letting them cast who they wanted, this could have been Johnny Depp. And I have to say, I think it would have been a bad movie as somebody who has seen almost every movie that Johnny Depp has done until I stopped Mm -hmm. and then haven't seen anything new and still genuinely like some of those movies. I don't think he would have been good for this role.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Like just,
0: I think he would have been too old too.
1: Yeah. Uh, Nah, I don't have anything else to add. It just, I'm it, just like, it wouldn't th- have worked. thank goodness. Yeah. So it, it, and it just, it really would have been a stubbed toe of a stand the test of time for this movie. Yeah. Cause Johnny Depp is pee pee poo poo. And that just would have tainted this movie now in retrospect.
0: So starting to get into this movie, you said this while we were watching it and it's so depressingly accurate that every time we watch this, it starts to feel more and more relevant to our real world (laughs) yeah i find this um when i reread 1984 which i reread fairly often that like every time i read it i'm like getting closer and closer to this like it feels more and more relevant so that's a bit of a depressing part of watching this movie is being like oh ai Mm -hmm. jinkies we literally watched a daily dose of internet that talked about how ai is going to be able to like interpret our brain and like take it like Make images of it. I'm like, do we really want to do that? Have you seen The Matrix? And then we watched The Matrix and it was like, oh yeah. (laughs) No, let's not do that.
1: Yeah. Um, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? No. No? No. Do you? I do. I we it was just me and my mom. I think my sister was staying at my grandma's, maybe, and my dad was working. So it was just us on like Friday or Saturday night, and we went out and we rented The Matrix from Blockbuster and we watched it. And I remember thinking it was so cool. I I loved it so much. I know we eventually just bought it on VHS and watched it over and over again. And yeah, like it's kind of it's kind of nuts to think like I love this movie so much and have probably watched it every year to two years since I was nine years old. It's so weird. It's (laughs) so weird to think that.
0: It's one of those ones that just like is almost like a sleeper favorite. Like you forget that it's your favorite, but it can always be turned on and you'll enjoy it.
1: Well, and the fact that like you were saying that I can take something new away from it every time I rewatch it as an adult for better or worse (laughs) is really special and really incredible and a testament to this film.
0: That's really my my bar for art of any kind is do I get something new out of it either because I've changed or because the world has changed or because I, the film is so thoughtful and interesting that there's just things that you notice more when you've got the context of already having seen it? hmm that's going to elevate something to a favorite for me, like a, an all-time favorite and one that I can kind of put on any time. Mm-hmm. I think this film balances all of that so well. Like it's just a good action movie, but it's also incredibly interesting thematically and philosophically. It's quite diverse, especially for 1999 and like a blockbuster film. And then of course, even more phenomenal knowing that the Wachowskis are trans like that they made this fucking amazing movie that, like so many people love, um
1: yeah, just like the fact that one of the best sci-fi action films that's ever been made is made by queer people and has a queer undertone in its storytelling as well is really, really awesome.
0: So maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about that that like that trans queer reading that's inherent to The Matrix. I found a a read, not found, not like it's like hard to find, um, an article from like a really popular trans uh, Letterboxd user, uh, Sally Jane Black. We've read some of her stuff on the show before. So she actually wrote an article for Letterboxd because Letterboxd has like a little newsletter journal thing that they do. So it's a big, long post. I'm just going to read a portion of it. But it's called Beginning to Believe, A Reflection on the Matrix. Hmm. There's some really beautiful stuff in it um, when she gets more into kind of her personal story about the way that the Wachowskis use mirrors throughout the film and like how mirrors are a often a difficult thing for trans folks. Yeah, Um, I'm not going to read those parts of it because I feel like that's her story to tell. And I don't want to put my voice onto that, but uh, we'll link to the full article in in our show notes. But I want to read a little bit about how she speaks to the trans reading of the matrix. I'm going to read part of it. Mm So the Wachowski's conceptualization of Neo held a mirror to my life and forced forced my face into it. I didn't want to hear what they had to say, but I may not be alive if they hadn't compelled me to listen. However, before I gravitated to Neo, there was Morpheus. Quote, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. You don't know what it is, but it's there. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not unlike the mechanized abstractions Neo confronts in the film, the concept of gender and its mostly unchallenged definition is so nebulous that questioning it can feel like a blasphemous act. To contend with traditional interpretations of masculinity, femininity, and the mannerisms by which one should abide if they hope to adequately pass or to exist between and beyond these two ends of the spectrum is to disrupt the basis of reality itself. To prod that centuries-old foundation to me is not unlike Morpheus's first conversation with Neo in the construct. What is real? How do you define real? Change the word "real" to gender, and it all begins to unravel. So I, I just think it's a really—I can see a queer reading in it myself, um, but I think it's important to like hear trans folks speak about it specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll post that article. I thought it was really—it's—it's it's a longer article, and and it gets into her own personal experiences. And I think it's really, really, really awesome.
1: Yeah. I, I absolutely love that. And I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, ever since I've gotten older and more aware and I've, I've heard this story and, you know, seen the Wachowskis uh, through the transition and speak about the film and whatnot. Like I, I feel so much more power, power in the film. Every time I revisit the matrix,
0: I mean, at its simplest, um, the way that, like, Agent Smith refuses to call Neo by his chosen name. Yeah. And, and the, like, the way that as a viewer, you would, ha- you hate that. You're like, stop calling him Mr. Anderson. His name's mm-hmm. Neo. Yeah. You know, there's, and then the character of Switch is also so queer coded. I guess in the original script, Switch was going to be played by a man and a woman mm-hmm. to, like, really highlight like the that like true self kind of element of it
2: mm.
0: I don't know the film is just so amazing on so many different levels and the when you the more you read about it the more you read that the Wachowskis just were like so locked into what they wanted from this um they had their cast they had like a required reading list for the cast and it's all like super heavy existential (laughs) philosophical stuff. So Simulcra and simulation is a book that everybody had to read. And it's the book that Neo has hollowed out in Mm. his, in his uh, apartment. They had to read a book called out of control and they had to read a book called evolutionary psychology. And I just think that's so cool. And that like the cast kind of had to be on board for that.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I think I, I love that. I think that's great. Something yeah, something about this movie is that I love all the performances in this. Like even even if some are like they start veering into hamminess sometimes, I like it though. <laughs> and then like the rare instance where like there's the the CGI, like 90s CGI where in many films seeing that it would just date it and kind of make it seem cheesy. I feel like the story here is so good that it just adds to the charm of the story. Like whenever, yeah, like whenever there's like some green screen stuff, that's maybe not, not gelling in today's standards. It works.
0: It's pretty minimal. Like the special effects for the most part are still quite, quite good. I think it's some of the more, um, What are those creatures called? The Sentinels. Yeah, some of that's a little cheesy. Um,
1: But there's like the balance of it is so right in this, and like I know that feelings about the sequels to the Matrix are so complex and complicated because I I feel like I feel like you and I are the same and we echo many other people in the world where this is the best Matrix movie.
0: Yeah i I love this movie and. Um, before Matrix Resurrections came out, we, we watched all three of them, and I had seen all three of them, but I only once. I think I saw both of the sequels in the theater with my sister. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong about that. Um, and I'm like, I think every ten years or so, I'll watch all four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'll watch the Matrix, the first one, probably once a year.
1: Yeah, it's it, like there's just there's so many moments in this that still. I know that they're coming, but they still give me chills. Oh, yeah. And pump and pump me up so much. They're just so epic and they're so well executed.
0: So this is on my list of movies I love so much I refuse to ever teach them. So The Matrix is actually uh, quite a common taught text in high schools mm. um, because it does a really good job of showing like the hero's journey and um, archetypes and that kind of stuff. But I... I have to I have to like a film enough to teach it. It's like a seven or an eight out of ten, but if it gets into ten out of ten and sometimes even nine out of ten territory, I just can't teach it because I can't handle the way students dismiss stuff right. when they, when they when they're learning it that they might love if they watched it outside of the classroom yeah but because they're doing it in school, many of them, not all of them will just automatically dislike it. Some of them, they'll love it in a way they never would have if they hadn't studied it. Um, And that's amazing, but I just can't risk it. There's certain films I'll never risk it with. I won't risk it with Parasite. I won't risk it with After Sun, and I won't risk it with The Matrix. (laughs) I just love it too much, and I don't want to let anybody else in to take that away from me. I would like to tell you something you might not know. Okay. I have a very... Well, I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. Mm -hmm. I do have a very distinct memory of an awareness of budding sexual feelings. Can you guess what made me feel a little turned on when I watched the matrix?
1: Um, I I have it. it like, are you looking for a scene like specific scene? It or? is a
0: specific scene. The scene itself is not why it's what you see in the scene.
1: Is it the scene where Neo's bugged?
0: Yeah. <laughs> And it's the hair on his belly. <laughs> Do
1: you know what's funny? It's like, that was the first thing I thought. of. was like, it's probably the seat, and it's probably because of the hair on his
0: belly. <laughs> yeah. I rem- I just remember having this feeling of like, oh, oh, I don't, oh, something's happening.
1: <laughs> oh, gross bug. But also, I can't look away.
0: <laughs> and But it's specifically because of, yeah, like the hair coming down from his belly button. I don't want to call it what people call
2: it. <laughs>
0: but I, yeah, I, uh it's like emblazoned into my brain being like that is attractive, but not having that kind of language for it. Cause I'm nine, but being like, what is this feeling?
1: And it's so funny that like, that's you love his body in that seed, but that, that seed is the most body horror element. And of I, the and whole I am
0: very bothered by the bug stuff and the mouth stuff, but I also really like his belly. <laughs> and, and neo also has like my ultimate favorite body which is like that lean magician's it, it can
2: body be,
1: it
0: can be skinny or it can be muscly but just that like I, I don't want no bane you know
1: yeah magician's body
0: yeah yeah it's uh so anyway i'm, I'm glad that you knew that i'm glad that that's obvious to you <laughs> that would be my my uh my moment
1: yeah it isn't uh it isn't fair how baby Neo and Trinity are in this movie,
0: yeah, it's wild.
1: It's too much. Do
0: you like their sunglasses? <laughs> they were custom, custom
1: made? I get that. I feel like they blew the budget with Morpheus's sunglasses though because it's like get the okay, listen up. no arms on these suckers
0: the uh <laughs> the person who made them he all he had to work on was like the names of the characters, so they're all inspired by like Neo Trinity. Morpheus.
1: Because Neo kind of has like cat eye.
0: (laughs) I don't love him, to be honest. They're not like I actually find Neo the most attractive pre understanding the Matrix.
1: Like before he gets all like trench coat, sunglasses. I don't
0: like the sunglasses. And I don't like when his hair has like gel in it. I like when it's a little like messier. But Mm. I do love that tight black top, long sleeve top on him.
1: After he loses the
0: jacket. yeah, Yeah. that is a sexy outfit. So still to this day, my my sister had it right. And I wasn't allowed to feel those feelings because Keanu Reeves was her crush. But I don't care anymore. Question for you. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know about how some of the language and like symbolism of this film has been co-opted by like extreme right wing groups? No. You don't know this? No. So the, I I mean, and and this is unsurprising that the idea of the red pill and the blue pill have become so ubiquitous just in culture. Even if you've never seen the matrix, you've probably heard, take the blue pill, take the red pill. Mm -hmm. And of course, within the film, the red pill is like learning the truth. Yeah. So the phrase like the red pill has been co-opted by right wing groups to be like, see the truth about like, like, like men's rights groups. There's a film called the red pill, which is all about how like. I don't even know. I don't even want to give it the time of day. Mm -hmm. But this is amazing. So that's gross. But this is amazing. In 2020, Elon Musk tweeted, take the red pill. And Ivanka Trump retweeted him and said, taken with an exclamation mark. And then Lily Wachowski retweeted both of them and said, fuck both of you. (laughs) And I love that so
2: much. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Like I love that. I hate that that language has been co opted, but I also love that the makers of the film say no, fuck you. That's not
1: it's not for that's you. not
0: what we intended with this. And you're just using the language of trans women, so sucks for you if that's something you don't like. <laughs> There's a real irony in that. That's this film and the ideas from it are are super queer and super existential and super left. Mhm. And yet these right-wing groups have co-opted them, maybe sometimes not even knowing that that's who they're taking this language from, but continue to like the wachowskis and how they speak out against that.
1: yeah. Uh, I love that so much. Something I'm always and I I wonder how they feel about this, but I it's always disappointing when we rewatch the Matrix and even watching it on streaming services they haven't Updated the Wachowskis' first names in the yeah. end credits. Like, I wonder if that's just a
0: a legality a thing.
1: legality thing, which really really stinks because I, I feel like it's just some te- it's just some text. Can't you just like throw in a new? Super- well, I mean,
0: so this has come up with Elliot Page's transition in that I think fairly immediately Netflix. As they should because Paige is in the Umbrella Academy, which is such a flagship show for Netflix, mm-hmm. um, updated all of their stuff to say Elliot Page. Mm-hmm. but I don't think they could update the actual shows just like the like everything that's in the descriptors. Yeah, like I th- and like the search button and stuff and then I think Amazon followed suit quite quickly. So like if you look up Juno, it says Elliot Page, but when you actually watch Juno, that's not the name it says.
1: I think that's the same with the Matrix. Like yeah. I think in the streaming service content,
0: even on like Apple if
1: you go to buy it. Yeah, like that information is updated, but the actual end credits itself. of the film aren't updated. But like I feel like, you know, they they could hire somebody could, for a day they they to managed do it. to
0: change all of the disney stuff in theater and on streaming to have like the purple um
1: black panther black panther thing for,
0: oh, chadwick Bozeman? Yeah, for Chadwick Boseman yeah for chadwick Bozeman. um if they can do that but i think there must be some legality involved in it uh it know. is disappointing It was particularly disappointing to see bound in the theater which is you know, in retrospect, knowing it was made by these queer folks. And I believe they're both in relationships with women, too. So, like, super lesbian queer <laughs> folks. Yeah. Um, and then to not have their names be
1: correct was... It's a real Mr. Anderson moment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The friggin' world, man. The yeah. friggin' world.
1: All, every, all that aside, this movie slaps, has always slapped, and will continue to slap. As long as nobody is revealed to be pee-pee-poo-poo, which I would just absolutely hate. I'd be I'd be so crushed if something like that happened, but this movie's amazing.
0: I think Hugo Weaving was a little pee-pee-poo-poo, but not being in The Matrix Resurrections, but that's all kind of gossipy drama, so I don't really know.
1: I also just like, I don't really like Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you do like Jonathan Groff.
1: Yeah, I do. And I, I, I don't. I did not hate the Matrix Resurrections as much as the world hated Ra- Matrix Resurrections. It's
0: very divided on my letterbox. Like there's people who've given it like five out of five and people who've given it like one or two.
1: Maybe I liked it more because we watched it in the middle of the pandemic and we were stuck at home and this was one of the only things that had come out in a long time. So we're like, oh, fresh, good content. It's
0: like like we really like Yaya yeah, yeah, Abdul, um... Mateen, like, we really like him, who's in Candyman and uh, the HBO Watchmen. You really like, well, we both really like Jonathan Groff, but you have Mm -hmm. a big crush. And I have big crush on on Jessica Henwick, who plays Bugs Mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. So it was just, like, really good eye candy. Oh, Christina Ricci was in it, too. Not enough. Right. But it was a really good cast. I'd like to revisit it. Maybe not watch the second and third and just go straight to that
2: one. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know. This movie is so good. Can I ask you one final question before we for you ask me the final question. Yeah. Would you take the red or the blue pill?
1: I don't know. If Morpheus sweet-talked me the way he sweet-talks Neo in this and, like, pursued me as hard as he pursues Neo in this, <laughs> I'd probably take the that red pill. That doesn't
0: make Morpheus sound very good.
1: But, like, no. Like, I feel like Morpheus is cool about it.
0: I feel like on a very dark note that idea of taking the red or the blue pill is also in the vanishing, which we talked about last week. Mm. Like, are you okay with not knowing once you know that there's something to know? <laughs> do you know? You know, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I do believe in this. If you take the blue pill, you'll wake up and not remember anything. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you know, there's more to learn and you're either accepting that you won't know the answers Or that you'll know the answers, but maybe you won't like them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I think I'm too much of a
1: risk averse.
0: No, I think I would take the red pill. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of the way that like if you just like look like you're looking at something on your phone. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I just want the answers. Mm. So like while I am risk averse, if it's about questions and answers, I got to know. Gotta know, I gotta know, I gotta know.
1: And this like handsome man with sunglasses with no arms.
0: Who just is so calming and like seems really smart.
1: Yeah. Um, and yeah. he's just like, the pleasure is all mine. It's like, <laughs> yeah, um, I'll take, I'll take that. I'll, ta- pill. I'll I'll take two of them. <laughs> what happens <laughs> whatever if you, you want? <laughs> what happens if you took both?
0: Cancel each other out? You would just neither
1: fall asleep. Get diarrhea in your sleep. <laughs> yeah, and then you'd
0: wake up and you'd still know what happened.
1: It's, I but took you the, wouldn't have the answer. I took the brown
2: pill.
0: You, you, you. Uh, how did it make you feel? The Matrix always makes me feel thrilled by the movie, but also anxious about the world.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, makes me feel forever excited to take away something new from every watch. Whoa, whoa. Speaking of whoa. <laughs> The next movie that we watched was an old favorite of mine, and uh, there's a reason that I got another mystery movie pick in a row, and I'll get into that in a second, but we watched the 1997, (laughs) I I did not update, (laughs) I did not update the genres, 1997 action drama (laughs) sci-fi.
0: It is an adventure comedy crime.
1: Uh, weekend, what did you say it was? Uh, action at no, Drama 7. No, what iva. year did you say it was? 1997.
0: It is 1989, my love.
1: <laughs> I just like fell asleep at the wheel. 1989.
0: Adventure, weekend. comedy, crime.
1: Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> it was directed by Ted Kotcheff, who also I looked, he directed First Blood, like the first Rambo movie, Okay, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, and written by Robert Klang. It stars Andrew McCarthy as Larry Jonathan Silverman as Richard Parker, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart as Gwen and Terry Kaiser as Bernie tagline. I like I wanted to include this because I thought it was it it seems like they had two taglines in mind and they couldn't settle on which one to go with. But this is the one that was on the poster. Bernie would be the perfect host, except for one small thing. He's dead. Now he's the life of the party. Wow. It's like we got two real (laughs) slam dunk puns. Which one do we go with? This or both on the poster. Uh, the synopsis, two idiots try to pretend that their murdered employer is really alive, leading the hitman to attempt to track him down to finish him off. It's Real bad synopsis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So the reason that I picked this was I've talked on the show before about the complicated relationship I have with my dad and that, you know, in 2018, a bunch of things came to light about... Uh, stuff that he did that subsequently kind of broke our family apart and severely strained my relationship with his side of the family. And then as a, as a response to all of that really fell out of touch with all of them already did. Like we already kind of had a relationship where they didn't really reach out to me and I, and and i didn't i didn't do that either but you know through therapy i've learned that in all of the things that happened i'm the child in all of this and they they are the adults so that's people like my aunts and uncles and my grandma who i call nana um not reaching out to me and wanting to see how i'm doing so i've just fallen out of touch and the there's a lot of resentment built up on that side of the family against me and I just didn't need that in my life. And it started coming to light that my grandma, my nana was getting really sick. And my that side of the family, there were members that reached out to me and started guilting me and making me try to feel shame, telling me I needed to do certain things as my grandma got my nana got sick and that I needed to connect with her and it was just, I did not appreciate laying on, there was no checking in to see how I was feeling, how I was doing, how my life is going. So yeah, it, it, I just didn't, I didn't appreciate that approach at all. And so I kind of, and like my relationship with my Nana, we were really close when I was little. Uh, and I was like, like early elementary school age. We were very close. And I was always sleeping over there on weekends and throughout the summer And then we just, uh, as I got older, she never really made an effort to connect with me. Um, It was always, if we we didn't put in the effort to see her, we weren't going to see each other. Um, So that relationship just kind of drifted as time went on and our closeness became less close. But yeah, leading up to today um very this is very strange way to find out, but I found out that my nana died um earlier this week. She died on Tuesday and I found out on Friday not from my dad's family at all, but just through my sister who found out through the grapevine and then relayed that to me so I found out that she died in this really strange this this weird game of telephone essentially of how I found out that she died. So, you know, I had already kind of made peace with my grief before she died. That, you know, this was a relationship that was not nurtured, was not reciprocated. You know, again, going back to the fact that she was the adult and that I'm the child and that she'd never made the effort to want to be a part of my life. Why would I put in all of the effort if that wasn't going to be reciprocated? And I had made peace with that. And I had made peace with the fact that she was likely going to die soon and that I wouldn't be a part of that. So it was, it was a tough thing. And like I'm certainly sad. And I know like the day that I found out, I said to you, Kylie, that I'm very likely going to experience ranges of emotions day to day as things go on, like they're not having a big funeral for her or anything. I think they're just the obituary said they're having a small family thing. And I'm clearly not invited to that. Um, and I'm okay with that. But I think, you know, I'm feeling sad for sure. Like it's a very sad thing. Like this is a person that was really important in my life at a really early stage in my life. And then has since drifted, like I said, but, um, this was the this was the day that I found out that she died. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be invited to any sort of celebration of life, get together or anything like that. But I kind of want to celebrate the time that I was closest with her in a way that means something to me in a way that um, with a way that is really important to my life, which is watching movies, specifically watching movies with you who is the most important person in my life. So I chose weekend at Bernie's, which may seem like this really silly choice when it's Mm. coupled with the death of a person, a little dark. (laughs) Um, but when I, when we were really close and I was little, this was one of my Nana's favorite movies. And whenever I would go over for a sleepover, even though I knew that she'd seen it so many times and that we'd watch it so many times, she would always howl laughing whenever we watched it. So if I ever wanted to like just see my, my Nana laugh and I wanted to enjoy my time with her watching a movie, I would always bring over our copy of weekend at Bernie's so that we could watch it together. And she would always make an obscenely large bowl of popcorn, like way too much popcorn. This is probably why I'm a popcorn fiend because (laughs) the bowl, no lie is probably as wide as the chair I'm sitting in right now. Like it's what it's <laughs> would you eat it all? yeah, we kind of do what we do now, where like my grandpa would get a bowl, my nana would get like the like smaller bowls for themselves, and then I would get like the big Mac daddy <laughs> bowl and just chow down, Wow, crazy, I don't know how my heart did not explode, but she would always make hot air popcorn, and I would sit on the counter while she made it, mm. and I would like watch her, and then like I'd help like put on the salt put on the butter, so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to make hot air popcorn for the two of us like you and I always do. And we'll watch Weekend at Bernie's. And I wasn't sure if you had seen it before. It turns out you hadn't. So like that's kind of an extra bonus on top of it. But I, th- I just thought that was like a really nice way that is a very me related to me and my relationship with my Nana way to celebrate her life and to pay homage to the time that we were closest. And that, ma- that made me feel good. And that gave me, like, I don't know, like, it's still pretty early, but it gave me a sense of closure in some capacity to what we had. And no matter how complicated things got, we always had this time that was really nice together.
0: Yeah. And a way of, like, honoring that closeness that you had that is foundational to who you are as a person. Totally. Even if the relationship changed. And to get out of the like muckiness of the family drama and the family complications and just honor her in a way that is about the two of you. Yeah. And not about anybody else. Yeah. And I'm- allowing me to share in, in that um, I think is really beautiful.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, yeah. Even like with you saying that, like, it's very clear how important that time was to me because I'm literally, I'm replicating something we used to do together, which is already something that you and I do on the regular. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I always make the hot air popcorn when we have popcorn at home. And I love picking movies that I'm hoping will get a reaction out of you or that you'll enjoy. And I love watching you enjoy these things that I pick. So it's it's such a core memory that's that's tied to who I am today. So, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was the perfect way to to celebrate that point in my life. So, that all said, what do you think of Weekend at Bernie's?
0: <laughs> so I had I had heard of this movie. Your Nana didn't always like movies that I would like. So I was a little nervous when you said you were going <laughs> to
1: I was also, I have not watched this since I was quite young. So I was nervous like, oh my God, is this going to stand the test of time at all?
0: And I think there's a, there's a layer of, you had told me before you picked it, that this is what you were going to be doing. You were going to pick a movie that you watched a lot with your Nana mm-hmm. that you wanted to, you know, cause I had said to you that day, you're feeling a lot of complicated things and, as you've already said, you'd done some kind of pre grieving and you've done a lot of work in therapy around this, but that doesn't change the fact that when it actually happens, there's a lot of feelings in the moment. So I mm-hmm. said like, what do you want to do tonight? It was technically my mystery pick, but I so graciously Ugh. handed it over to you and said, you have to give me two more. <laughs> Man, So <laughs> uh, humble. So humble. <laughs> um, so you had told me like, I'm going to pick a movie that like was really important to me and my Nana and that we watched a lot together. Mhm. So I was a little nervous <laughs> about what it was going to be. I'm like, this is be of old ass bullshit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I said, it's like, it's not Ben and Broomsticks. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but I have to say, I had a pretty good time with it, and I and I don't know how much like knowing that like we were watching this movie as a kind of wake <laughs> 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 influenced that. Um, because people on my letterbox do not like this movie.
1: Oh yeah, it's like objectively not a super awesome movie.
0: I Think objectively, it's a super terrible movie. No, um, what it was was absolutely goofy, like oh, yeah. in the vein of like a Bill and Ted, not quite as nice as a Bill and Ted, but but that kind of thing. Like, it's got some like stoner humor in it without being like explicitly stoner humor, mm-hmm. um, which is some of my favorite humor. I just think it's so funny. I will say, although I'd never seen Weekend at Bernie's, I knew about it Mm -hmm. like I knew it was about like being in a beachy location with like a dead body and then like pretending the body's alive I knew that I didn't know it was a boss takes a really long time to get to that log line (laughs) it takes a really long time for us to get to the point where Bernie is dead yeah so they really like jump the gun with like the synopsis and the you know there's a lot of pre-weekend at Bernie's (laughs) <laughs> where they're just like working in insurance yeah. in the city. <laughs> yeah. Um but it was like for the most part just like a goofy lighthearted time. I believe early in the film Richard calls the two of them schmucks. Yeah. And that's just like the perfect way to describe them. They're just they're just schmucks and they're just goofy and probably not very ethical to like keep this dead body
1: alive oh. alive and over um, the course of the movie like this corpse would be fucking toast
0: yeah bernie <laughs> i don't know what he did in his life to make himself so resilient
1: Moisturized. in death drank a lot of water but
0: he he looks good like he gets covered in sand he takes a ride in the water he's you know battered around and yet
1: sits in the sun
0: he still looks great he's not rotting (laughs) there's no bugs so you know there's a certain amount of suspension of disbelief (laughs) I found myself becoming like my mother my mother's a terrible person to watch anything medical with like I remember watching Grey's Anatomy with her once and a parent was doing a bone marrow transplant for a child and my mom was like actually parents are very rarely matches for their children with bone marrow like (laughs) That's my mom, but I found myself becoming my mom and being like, "Why is he not rotting yet?" <laughs> so, which
1: is a question I never asked myself because clearly, like, I watched this as a little kid, but as an adult, that just added to the humor for me. I'm yes, like, that like this guy's like limbs would start falling off at this point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, uh, it's goofy. It is a really, really goofy time, and one of the funniest things that happened while we were watching this is we came up with our own little theory that this is the inspiration for almost every post-1989 successful movie. Yeah. So I want to go through some of them now. There's a scene where out of nowhere, guests just start filling Bernie's house. Mm -hmm. Seems like a scene straight out of mother. So Darren (laughs) Aronofsky saw that and was like, huh?
1: Yeah. Darren Aronofsky watched weekend at Bernie's and was like, "Mm, that's terrifying. I'm going to, I'm going to turn
0: that that into a horror movie. Like, Then there's a extended scene in a lighthouse that gets a little um, silly. And I feel like Robert Robert Eggers Eggers was like, hold my beer. What if those two people were Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson? That would be great. Mm -hmm. Everything to do with the dead body, especially a scene on the water, feels like the Daniels saw that and were like, what if that was Daniel Radcliffe and he was farting? Yeah. (laughs) There's also a pretty dark scene to do with um, rigor mortis and sex <laughs> that feels like Kevin Smith saw that and was like clerks
1: and then the character one of our lead character's name is Richard Parker and clearly Yan Martel was like well clearly that's the tiger in
0: Yeah, I think if we asked Jan Martel, he would tell us that his favorite movie is Weekend at Bernie's, (laughs) and he was paying homage to it with the character of Richard Parker.
1: So Weekend at Bernie's is clearly peak cinema.
0: Yeah, like if Weekend at Bernie's didn't exist, we wouldn't have The Lighthouse, we wouldn't have Swiss Army Man. If we didn't have Swiss Army Man, we wouldn't have everything everywhere all at once. Um, We wouldn't have Clerks, and if we didn't have Clerks, we wouldn't have Dogma. We wouldn't have Tusk, which is also peak cinema. You know, like this is a really, really important film.
1: Super influential.
0: I also think they made a good choice with the title because in reading about this movie, I found out what the original title was going to be. Mm. Hot and Cold. Ooh. I feel like thematically it's quite fun, but I feel like it just doesn't have the uh, je ne sais quoi of Weekend at Bernie's. I f- th- Despite the fact that the internet is very intense about the fact that they do not actually spend an entire weekend at Bernie's. They spend about 24 hours there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I mean yeah, like it's Labor day weekend, like they're supposed to spend three days and they don't no, like they get there like six p m on Saturday, and then they're there until like late afternoon on Sunday, yeah, I mean, it is a weekend at Bernie's, I don't know i I blow holes through that logic, <laughs> but like the hot and cold thing the the main song that they play which is like a real ripper it rips right into the movie it's really good i think it's called hot and cold
0: yeah and i read that the reason they didn't title it hot and cold was while they got the rights to play the song they didn't get the rights to use the title
1: <laughs> okay so we in burnies is it i love the title it's so good it's rachel green's favorite movie Se- And it secretly
0: absolutely makes sense with rachel we we're currently slowly rewatching friends and uh that that checks. Yeah. We also have to mention, as we've already mentioned once, and speaking of friends, it's a problem there too. There's some gross transphobia in this.
1: Um, Misogynistic jokes as well. Yeah.
0: It's not the most overt, but it is part of a culture that creates inherent transphobia. Um, one of them, one of the moments you'd miss it if you didn't have subtitles on and so it seems completely unnecessary because it's just um background actors.
1: Yeah. I missed it with subtitles. Also. Yeah,
0: it's and I was just like, wow, that was gross. Um, and then there's another one that's a little bit more overt that I could see a person being like, Well, that seems harmless, and I'm but it's not. And in a week where we're, you know, watching The Matrix and looking at how these phenomenal trans women filmmakers have had their own symbolism co-opted by people who want to harm people like them. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, I think it's important to, even in a movie that has nostalgia or has aspects that we like to mention that transphobia is gross and should not be tolerated.
1: Yeah. That's certainly not great. But when, when we got to the end of this thinking about punch down humor and comedies that stand the test of time, I would, I would revisit weekend at Bernie's before, revisiting like the hangover or, yeah, I agree. or many of the apatow crew films and i also want to say the mvp of this movie there's 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 an mvp and then there's a runner-up i will say the mvp is andrew mccarthy is larry
0: <laughs> he's kind of cute
1: especially his shoes and his sunnies in this movie his socks yeah. are crazy um but he's i w- when i was a kid i thought he was the funniest part Watching him now, I I love how chaotic he is.
0: But he also is the one who's like, let's just pretend Bernie's alive. And that's definitely not ethical.
1: The uh, the runner up is Terry Kaiser as Bernie. Because the body humor, like him just playing a dead body (laughs) throughout this whole movie. Insane work. And this movie would not
0: play as well if they had used like a mannequin. Yeah. I mean, Uh, it's uh, what makes it completely unbelievable. Like (laughs) dead bodies don't move like that. Yeah. But it's so funny, like the expression on his face. And <laughs> I just, yeah. I w- it was just kind of that, you know, that like aghast laughter where you're like, this is so ridiculous, um, which was pretty fun.
1: Yeah. So this is like super silly, super stupid, has a little bit of problems, but despite all that, I was happy to revisit it. Uh, and happy to happy to have like this nice sort of like wake moment for my nana. Happy to watch it with you. That make you feel
0: silly fun watching those two schmucks
1: <laughs> yeah. you Uh, nostalgic, tickled by by its silliness, uh, and in awe of its influence on Hollywood. Here we go. one more smackerguinea.
0: so we went to the theater um and we saw the drama romance. 1997 film Happy Together. It was directed by Wong Kar Wai um, and written by Wong Kar Wai. It was inspired loosely by the novel The Buenos Aires Affair by Manuel Puig. It stars Leslie Chung as Hao Po Wing, Tony Luang Chi Wao as La Yu Fa, or Fei, uh, and Cheng Chen as Cheng. Synopsis for this is a couple take a trip to Argentina, but both men find their lives drifting apart in opposite directions. This is our third Wong Kar Wai film, but very much like Autumn Sonata at the beginning of the week, it was our third Bergman, but our first one in the theater. This is our third Wong Kar Wai, but our first one in the theater. Hmm. And we have kind of been on a similar timeline of our journey in discovering Wong Kar Wai and finally watching his films that we have with Bergman. So, really nice way to tie up the week, um, as well as the fact that this is the second in the Trials of Love series that is being guest curated at Metro. So really nice way to just bookend things was very excited to see this, especially because it's Monkerwise gay film mm-hmm. uh, and that automatically makes me even more excited. I think Tony Leung is absolutely handsome. So handsome. It's kind of unbearable. <laughs> um, so we went and saw this in the theater. What did you think of happy together?
1: It was truly a week of babes.
0: Yeah, this is a baby babe, like Keanu Reeves, Tony Long, um,
1: An- Carrie Ann Moss, Andrew McCarthy, <laughs>
0: Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I was I, I didn't think about the fact that we bookended things so nicely. That's very good. Um, yeah, I was excited to see just uh, another Wong Kar Wai film in general and then to find out it was gay bonus. He at this point, we've talked about this in the past, but I just want to make sure that make double sure that it's on the record that Wong Kar is a master of romance, specifically complicated romance. Yeah. And this film, it's, it's an examination of the pull that certain people can have in our lives. The people, the, the people that we choose to have in our lives or, you know what? No, I, I walked that back. Like anybody that's in our life, that's important or that we see as important or have influence and just how, for better or worse, some of them just can pull us back and pull us into spaces that we want to leave behind or we want to move forward from. And it's examined so eloquently and so honestly in this film.
0: That's a nice way of putting that. Um, this is our, like I said, our third Wong Kar Wai films we've seen In the Mood for Love. We've seen Chunking Express more recently. And now this one, and we've covered them all on the show, I believe. Uh, what I've noticed now that I've seen three of them is it takes me a little bit to fall into the rhythm of it. Mm-hmm. And then once I'm in, oof, I'm all in and I'm just like sucked into the visuals. But I sometimes feel a little discompopulated for a while until I like get the rhythm of that particular film. And I really do think that I am going to like all of his movies even more on a second watch. Mm-hmm. They're really rich in like subtle ways um, that I think I'll be able to appreciate so much more once I know the whole story and go back into it. Um, and I go back to the really beautiful language that the guest curator for slow cinema this year, I believe his name is Thomas Wischloff, um, said before Andrew, Andrei Tarkovsky's uh, mirror where he said like sometimes films open them up, open themselves up to you. I did different t- point in time right mm-hmm. and he said that in watching mirror he was hoping this would be the time it opens itself up to him and I really love that language because I feel like Wonka Weiss films have not quite opened themselves up to me but I know it's going to happen and when it yeah. does I think it's going to be like euphoric
1: <laughs> yeah like I I gave this a four to five and I and I did that just because on, an, on that emotional level that pushes things to a four and a half or a five, it didn't quite get there. But reading reviews of people who have rated it four and a half or five, I'm like, I totally see that. And I think I totally at a
0: certain that. point in time, it might become that for me. Yeah. Um, now, something I really love about this. I'm so fascinated by this um, in fil- international films that aren't English films, we English speakers, the difficulty sometimes in translating a title So the title of this is happy together, but that is not the title of it in Hong Kong. Hmm. So the title actually can't be easily translated to English, which is why it's called happy together. It's based on a Chinese idiom that directly translates to spring light at first glance. That's the direct translation, but which means glimpsing something intimate.
2: Hmm. And
0: that is so beautiful. Yeah, Like that is just such a, beautiful idea like the glimpse of something intimate Mm -hmm. it has so much more nuance than happy together (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally it's so much more compelling and thematically rich and what a disappointment that the english language just can't get there well it's
1: almost like because they have the song happy together play over the credits of the film at the end and it's just like i don't know we're using this song let's just call it happy together
0: i do think uh there's been some analysis of like that title and i and I do yeah. think it's rich and and complicated,
1: yeah we were talking about it this morning too yeah. in a spoilery way, and it, I'm like that makes sense, and that's I see the beauty in it, but yeah i I think there's more emotional beauty in
0: the glimpse into something intimate, so yeah. in that title, this film does such a good job of, yeah, showing those intimate moments both um difficult and beautiful, I think. I always feel a little uncomfortable when I see that in other couples when I'm like with them and and I either see those like kind of ugly ways that they can talk to each other, which I know we're capable of too. Mm -hmm. um, Or when I see like, like quite intense tenderness, I'm like, oh, this just feels like it's not for me. And (laughs) this film zooms into the tender and the ugly. Mm hmm. In the in the privacy of like this relationship between Hopo Wing and La Fei um, in ways that are really mesmerizing and yet sometimes like upsetting.
1: Yeah. No, totally. And like you know, there's there's something I think that's really beautiful and really important about someone you know, it's kind of, it's sad for me that I'm discovering Wong kar in his films so late in my life, but I know that he is a very influential filmmaker to a lot of people uh, and a lot of filmmakers that are making films in Hollywood. And I think it's so cool and so important for a queer story to come from somebody like Wong Kar to want to explore these kinds of stories, especially in like 90 in 97. I, I think it's really cool that this is a story he wanted to tell.
0: I have a, a quote from him that I find both hilarious and interesting because there's been, um, you know, there's always that kind of, there can be that intense criticism of, queer film that isn't made by queer people because Wong Kar Wai does not publicly identify as queer and I there's no suggestion that he is Mm -hmm. um Tony Leung doesn't identify as queer Leslie Chung um prior to his death uh identified as a bisexual man and had relationships with both men and women um and he was in a long-term relationship with a man when he when he died so there's been some like criticisms of like how queer this film is. And then also in like the depiction of the differences between Po Wing and Yifei. Um There's some criticism of that, especially from like a cultural perspective. But <laughs> Wong Kar said this, he said, I don't like people to see this film as a gay film. It's more like a story about human relationships and the two characters involved are both men. Normally I hate movies with labels like gay film, art film, commercial film. There's only good film and bad film. <laughs> All right. And, you know, I, but I think <laughs> on, the, on the one hand, I'm like, well, it's important that we have queer film. I also think it's important that we have film that's just film and there's queer characters in it. Yeah. And I think this film falls a little bit more into that. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly people in Reading letterbox who feel incredibly seen by this film. I think all of that is important. I think it's important that we have, to me, this film doesn't fall into like a just queer tragedy. I think there's so much more nuance than that. And we need depictions of all kinds of people and all kinds of relationships that are nuanced and not all. Like, I think it's important that we don't just have joy because that's not reality. And I know for me, I want to see films that reflect my experiences of messy and ugly and difficult emotions and experiences and not just the good stuff, but you don't want all of the bad stuff. So you need both. And I think this film works in the messiness of both in a really important way.
1: Yeah. Like I think that there are totally non queer people in this world that could hundred percent relate with the kind of relationship that our two leads have in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Trials of love. Indeed.
0: When I was thinking about that while watching this, because you and I have been together for so damn long, um, that I've never been in a messy on-again, off-again relationship. Mm -hmm. And I am so thankful for that after watching Mm -hmm. this film. But then I was reflecting on the fact that you and I each had a relationship in high school that was quite passionate and tumultuous. Yeah. And that I think could have become like this had we let it. yeah, Like, had we continued to, like, start again, to use the language of this film with those people later in life. Um, mm-hmm. I think we could have had really messy, passionate, but toxic relationships with those people far into our adulthood. Mm-hmm. Had we not found a staple, um, committed, hardworking thing between each other.
1: No, you're totally right. Cause yeah, especially in high school, like passion is the number one word. Oh Yeah. Or those kinds of relationships. And that 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 runs the gamut of positive to negative. Yeah, no, I uh I totally I totally see what you totally see what you mean, where you're coming from.
0: But it made me thankful to not be in that. It seems way too messy and way too difficult. And in that sense, then I couldn't relate to it. Um, but I could appreciate it and then like feel good about where I am.
1: (laughs) Yes very grateful this film also when we were talking this morning to this film does a really great job exploring the idea of home Mm -hmm. and reconciliation that exists within homes and what the definition of home is and longing for uh, where you want to be and what you want to do and where you want to go in your life and just like that idea of home can be so rife with emotion and be such a strong, powerful thing. It can be really hard to reckon with, because yeah, like our protagonists, like it, they want to be somewhere else. They want to go somewhere, and like it, I, it's a line that's repeated throughout the film. Of, I think it's "Let's start over," or "Let's start again," or mm-hmm. "Begin again," or or something something along those lines. And it's. For me, it kind of insinuated that like that meant that there was going to be a clean slate and that everything previous was going to be forgotten. And I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that's a healthy way.
0: I think you can hope it is, but our pasts don't just disappear from us. And I think it's looking at that both from a national identity and a romantic identity standpoint and the relationship you have with your national identity and with where you grew up And with the idea of home, both geographically and in another person, there's some really beautiful stuff happening in that. And this is definitely one I want to watch again, Mm -hmm. kind of knowing more about it um, and and having read so much about it. Now that we've watched it, it's really beautiful. It's really sad at times. Tony Leung is just so lovely and handsome and dreamy. And he seems really cool in real life. Um,
1: and Wong Kar loves putting them in little tidy whiteies, yeah. smoking ciggies.
0: <laughs> it was it was a, it was a really fun watch and a really excellent audience too, which was quite nice.
1: Yeah, that, I was gonna say that was that was really great.
0: We were all locked in,
1: very locked in. <laughs> um, well, I was gonna say too, like Wong Kar Wai. I think that why he would benefit so much on rewatch is that in a less heady way than like a David Lynch his films feel very dreamlike. And I Mm -hmm. feel like that's from his filmmaking style. Like he loves doing a motion blur or reduced frame rate film technique in everything that he does. And it exists here too. And there's
0: like also these like jarring moments of like quick cuts where it feels like either they were playing a DVD and it was skipping or like that's intentional to the film. Yeah, it's
1: like a freeze frame on a certain thing.
0: But then it cuts immediately to something different and it feels like there's been a portion cut out.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it it does have this sort of surreal, dreamlike quality to to the films that we've watched so far.
0: Within these quite realistic explorations of at least with the three films we've seen, they've all been about romantic relationships in in various different ways. Yeah. Yeah, so so compelling and I'm excited to rewatch ones we've already seen and and watch more of his films.
1: Yeah. And I think it I think it's so great just to put a button on it. I think it's so great that it's not just romance he's not exploring just romance for the sake of romance, but complicated romance in everything that we've seen. Yeah. I really appreciate him as a filmmaker.
0: How did happy together make you feel?
1: Once again, swept up in the romanticism of Wong Kar Wai. How did it make you feel?
0: Sense of like reflective melancholy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about dads.
1: Dads of the week, baby.
0: Who's your bad dad?
1: I picked Charlotte from Autumn Sonata. (laughs)
0: <laughs> ouch
2: <laughs>
1: um, I mean we kind of already talked about this a little bit when we were unpacking the film but I think for Charlotte that she became a parent without thinking deeply about what that means
0: I don't think you can say that I don't think the film lets us know I think you're projecting
1: maybe like, it, it's like it, fe- it feels like being a parent was backburnered as she needed it to be.
0: But I also, I'm going to go back to, I think there's an inherent sexism in judging her so harshly because men did and do that all the time and there's not the same emotional or societal repercussions for them if they like, I think the film does such a job of like zooming in on the pain that they have each caused to each other and the regret and the and the guilt and all of those things but like, we don't know enough of the context. Maybe she had to work to pay for their lives. We don't know enough about her husband and we don't know enough about that. It's just that regardless of the reasons, this is the hurt that her daughter has felt. Regardless of the reasons, this is the hurt and the guilt that she has felt. And I think like it's perhaps a little too harsh. Like it's, it's zeroing in on this one night of them saying all the things that they've felt that are very valid to them, but we don't get all of the context.
1: So would you say, like, because I'm kind of pulling from the context being the flashbacks that we see throughout the film. But, but that's those kind are
0: still of, like just slices and we don't see everything, right?
1: And would you say that's mostly pulled from, um, I can't remember, Eva? Eva, like from Eva's point of view? Yeah. And less from her mom's point of view? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, I would say that if this were a father, I would have the same critique.
0: But I don't think oh. this film would be made about a father is what I'm saying. Yeah, probably not in quite the same way. Yeah. I feel like there's a way that um, culturally we judge women who prioritize their careers in a way that we don't judge men and that there's an expectation that we have of the type of parent a mother will be. Now I do think that that stuff is ripe for complication, but I think that bad is perhaps too reductive for the complication of it.
1: Okay. What would you, <laughs> I'm just falling into sexist norms <laughs> and being a, being a bad person. But who did you pick? I
0: picked Bernie Lomax. Okay. Well, I mean, look, at com- compared to Charlotte, who still does provide for her family, uh, Bernie wants to murder his employees so that he doesn't get caught out in criminal activity that he's involved in. He's having affairs with his criminal boss's partners. He just seems like a total like lech and also somebody who's like just out to save his own skin, regardless of who that hurts in the process. And he's a liar and he's also not very smart.
1: Okay. Well, we won't go for fear of just perpetuating sexist norms and being pee pee poo poo person feel like we'll go with Bernie.
0: <laughs> Do you not think he's a pretty bad dad?
1: Uh I I mean, I think he's a bad person and I think that that would if he were to father children that he would be real nasty.
0: But I mean, as an employer, there is a power dynamic between him and Richard and Larry. Larry that can help us explore parent-child relationships and the fact that he like tells them they're great and invites them out for the weekend and says like, they're so good. And he's going to reward them to use that as a chance to kill them. I think is objectively nastier than just the messy complicatedness of Eva and Charlotte.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it.
0: Okay. Bernie Lomax.
1: Don't, don't, be, don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Especially now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Your dad.
1: <laughs> Who's your dad, dad? Morpheus. Same
0: obviously ultimate rat dad, wise, calm, dedicated, morally, just determined, believes in you. Even when you don't believe in yourself, a guide, mm-hmm. he's perfect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to add on to that, like willing to help others discover their truth. Um, he's a caring leader. He's not afraid of tough love in the, in the, in wanting to benefit you. He's quietly understanding and, uh, he he has this sort of air of confidence that isn't arrogant. Yeah, all around rad dad.
0: So Morpheus. Neo your dad. dad.
1: Two daddies of course. Trinity ne- and Neo?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. You're going to get a shot of uh Neo's belly. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus belly.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bonus belly. <laughs> oh, all right. Neo and Trinity. We woo. woo. Okay. Um, for Red Wreck this week, um, so when this episode drops, um, it's on a Thursday in a few days, it's going to be Father's Day and Father's Day can be a complicated day for a lot of people. We've talked about a lot of conf- complicated relationships and trials of love on this episode. So our Red Wreck our Red is celebrate Father's Day in a way that is meaningful to you with the important people that you call family. So if you know, you have a dad or a dad like figure in your life and you celebrate with them, or if you don't have a dad, um, but you have other people close in your life uh, that you call family and you celebrate with them, that's great. But if you
0: choose not to celebrate,
1: yeah, find your own way to make the day yours. That'll make you feel good. And if that means with other people or by yourself, you do you celebrate you
0: (laughs) celebrate you and your own rad dad energy
1: and maybe watch the Neo belly scene from the matrix.
0: Yeah. I'll make you feel nice. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And then kind of weird, but that's okay.
1: Yeah. Real nice, but kind of weird. Thanks for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life. Uh, and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Uh, but that is going to do it for these stinkies this week. So until next time.
0: I'm Kylie and my dad's dead.
1: I'm Elliot. My dad's a dippy. But remember, not all dads have to be bad.